Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Kurt Huesner to the show. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you. Good to be here. Kurt is Vice President of America's Digital Sales for Citrix. I'm sure pretty much everyone in the listening audience has heard of Citrix, but worthwhile to know what their new focus and mantra is, which is effectively digital workspaces for all. That certainly makes sense if you think about their suite of products for communication and collaboration and so on. Today, as a topic overall, we're going to talk about new sales techniques for a new buying environment. But before we do that, we're going to get to know Kurt a little bit. So Kurt, love to start by asking you first, what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? The one that maybe changed most dramatically for me and reinforced even my own sales thoughts was To Sell as Human by Daniel Pink. And it was one of those points in time where, you know, I'm just not a traditional or I wasn't fitting the view of a traditional seller in my mind. And what it did is reinforce all the things that I had thought over a longer period of time about how you bring value to customers in a very human way. It reinforced those thoughts. And so uh, I thought it was a pretty important step in reinforcing even my own thinking. As you related that to your Citrix experience, bringing value to customers, how did that book shape your thinking there? What did you change as a result of it? Well, it was a lot about thinking about how to teach. I have a, a very large inside sales organization and I had a large services organization, sales organization. In those two situations, you have to be a really in tune with listening and understanding the customer and trying to use techniques that help you to pull that out of customers as you're talking with them. And so to me, the techniques in the book talk to some of the ways that buyers want to be talked to today and how they think through their purchase decisions and the information they have more access to today. And so that changes how you have to communicate with them in order to get the type of information you need to be valuable. And so that's why I thought it was really kind of unique. But for me, it's then how do I take that and help others to understand, coach others on how to do that better. It was always kind of a part of how I sold, but it was something that I wanted to make sure that I could reinforce with the people that I was trying to coach on my team. Well, we're going to definitely get more into that. Before we do that, one more question, which is I'd love to hear either the first thing you remember selling or maybe a significant sale that really pops out in your mind. Yeah, it was probably the most significant first sale that I had is I was, um, I'd been hired by a kind of integrated marketing company that did all types of different programs, managed programs for IBM and to manage all of their business shows and environments. And the pharmaceutical industry did all their display work at major shows and events. And when I came in, basically, I was handed a phone book not even a contact list. This is 30 plus years ago. I just happened to find a technology company, Lexmark out of uh, Lexington, Kentucky, that was a spinoff of IBM. And I just started calling literally to see if there were things that we could help them with and built enough of a rapport with a set of people over a period of time where I got invited to participate in 
how they were going to utilize their event space at Comdex, which is a very large uh, computer exposition in Las Vegas. And in that, I was invited, I thought, to where I was going to be presenting virtually, but be presenting over the phone to just the execs of Lexmark. And lo and behold, I found out that I was actually presenting with three other companies. And the two other companies were major advertising agencies out of Manhattan. When you said with them, was it competing against them or in partnership with them for the business? It was actually competing against them, but they had each of us listen to each other's pitch, which was kind of an interesting uh, technique. They weren't really aware of this, but all the creative that had gone into all the copywriting, all the visual displays work, everything that had gone into it, I was just a very young salesperson. And so I got very little design time until we had kind of um, won programs. And so not as much speculative. So I did a bunch of this myself and presented the concept and wasn't even sure that we could execute at the time what I was proposing, but felt that we had a good opportunity to do it and it would really stand out for them. They were announcing color printers for the first time. And so we hung color sailed sailboats from the ceiling over their booth. So even though their booth was fairly small by contrast to like the IBMs, of the world. It was a way for them to stand out. And we actually gave away one sailboat a day if you went through all the different demos that were a part of their environment. I presented it and um, the others did fairly basic, nondescript presentations. They were Their major clients were IBM at the time, just different divisions of IBM. And so they tried to play off of only doing things that were very traditional to kind of IBM's thinking. And Lexmark was a spinoff at that time and was trying to create their own view of themselves. And so by doing this, I played into that, that I knew the people wanted to stand out over their ex-employer because I'd had enough conversations with them. So that plus standing out um, uniquely at the event basically won us a business. And we executed and it was kind of their launching pad to them as an independent company. I imagine that your competitors were um, complacent, right? That they figured they're most likely to win the business based on their relationship with IBM, that they didn't do the research that you did to take the time to know what positioning Lexmark actually wanted. Absolutely. And I think, you know, they took for granted the influence that IBM would have over that decision versus conversely, the people on the team feeling that they wanted to be independent in their thinking and do things that they weren't allowed to do at IBM at the time. I had spent enough time understanding those things where they had not. And so that that's what helped me to win it, I think. You mentioned giving away a sailboat every day. Was that one of the, the color printed sailboats above the booth or you actually gave away a sailboat? Yeah, which was, um, by the way, one of the logistics I didn't think as well about The sailboats hanging was not that big a problem because many of the booths had very large components that were hung over, very large signage or very heavy signage that was electronic. That wasn't really the problem. The problem was when we gave it away, there were all types of ramifications of, um, you know, there are international travelers that came. So somebody from Sweden won one of the boats. Shipping it to Sweden was a little different than uh, shipping it across the U.S., 
So that made it a little more difficult, the logistics after it, but we did do a winner per day. Wow. I guess a little less expensive to give away the the giant paper sailboat than it would be to give away a real sailboat or to ship, let alone ship a real sailboat to Sweden. Yeah. They were kind of smaller, but they were still pretty cool. And, and, and it did, it just gave them this visibility, of course, you know, who expects to walk through an exhibit hall and see a sailboat hanging from the ceiling. So you wanted to go see it no matter what. And so it was very successful. I think your story leads naturally into our topic of how selling has changed and the advice that you have for salespeople and for leaders around that. Just to frame that a little bit, I mean, you mentioned kind of early on having a phone book and the mod, I mean, there's a modern equivalent of the phone book, which is data services like Zoom Info and many, many others, LinkedIn, obviously, as well. You hear this all the time, right? That it's harder to get in touch with people. Is that really true as you reflect back through the years? I think just different. In the past, you had a desk phone. Unless you were sitting at your desk, you weren't picking up the phone. You didn't have the accessibility of a cell phone. And not that you always have access to people's mobile device to be able to contact them, but I think it's just different. And I'm not sure they were that much more willing to talk to somebody that was a salesperson trying to get a hold of you to talk to you about something they didn't even know that they may want or need from you. So it's changed, but not that dramatically. It's still, it's a human trying to build rapport with a human in a very short period of time in a way that they believe you can may be able to add value to what they do. So that's kind of complex to do in really short increments, but that rapport part, I think today people get very hung up on just the number of dials. And to me, you know, I'd rather see less dials and more contact and meaningful contact where you're engaged with them and trying to have some type of conversation. To me, that's what's most important. I guess the dials thing though, and or the emails or social touches or whatever types of touches, right? I think that is simply to like get the first meeting. Do you recommend to your sellers to do something significantly differently than the sort of that volume of, of activity? We still look for volume. There's a, a certain amount of activity that you have to do to get to a certain number of people to get a certain volume of interaction and, and on into the rest of the demonstrations, et cetera. Clearly we do that, but we do try and focus on how do we teach people to try and do the things that are required to build rapport or value in very short increments and then get them to commit to just trying something with us that allows us to at least have different interactions where we can build that value over time. Now, if we weren't very compelling as a set of products that we have as a company, it may be a little harder than what I'm describing, but it doesn't mean there isn't plenty of competition out in the world and there are for the same types of things that we do. And so to me, it gets back to that human interaction. One-on-one -on -one is what's so important and how do you take advantage of that? And it could be like you're saying, I mean, I'm talking about the, the actual engagement that's over the phone, but it's just as important, all the different interactions between the individuals, how do you make that as compelling and not look as generic as it can at times look when you're doing volume? And so that's the personalization part of it, I think is really important. Yeah. And to your point on personalization, I recently 
looked at the opportunity generation rate per thousand touches. And the range, kind of typical range, is at the bottom 10% or so is about one opportunity per thousand touches. And the top end of that range is more like 10 opportunities per thousand touches. So that gets kind of at your point that the best salespeople, and, and generally it is the people who personalize, can be a factor of 10 more effective. And that allows them to, in theory, either have less activity. And I think that is often what the case is, right? Is it's, you can't have both. You can't have an extremely high activity level and an extremely high personalization level. There's a frontier that you can't really cross just in terms of time. Yeah. And I think um, if you go back to the Dan Pink book, what he tries to point out is everybody's in sales and everybody's a salesperson. If you're trying to influence or have something happen on your behalf in a business environment, which you know is a pretty high percentage of the population in those companies. It's about influence and rapport that you build that value. How do you do that in short enough increments that you start building a trust between the two individuals? I think it also dismisses some of the belief that it's just great salespeople. Are there people who can actually understand and portray the things that they're trying to do with that customer? And that could be somebody that's not a natural salesperson, but just has the right empathy to be able to kind of establish that trust that allows them to continue the conversation. That's not always just a great salesperson. That's just somebody who's good at, and maybe the right situation with that right individual where that connects, or it could be where the value proposition connects. There are a lot of dynamics that go into the math that you were just talking about that become really complex to analyze even. Because we do the same types of analysis, you know, on an ongoing basis. The correlations, yes, there's some correlation to the stronger salespeople, but it's not always the things that you would intuitively think of in the past. And those are some of the things that are described in Dan's book. When you reflect on some of the analysis that you've done to identify traits, characteristics, behaviors that correlate with high performance. What are some of those traits, especially those that might be more, well, I mean, some are expected and some are unexpected. So what are some of those traits? Yeah. And we've even studied transcripts of a variety of salespeople over periods of time. And then what words or phrases are most commonly used with those customers when success is prevalent and when it's not. And even then it's very difficult because it tends to be very situational as we take it back and we analyze back to certain vertical markets. There's still a human aspect of it that's really hard to just put pure math and statistics to that comes down to how did those two interact and in what timing did they interact that caused it to happen? And it's too vast the number of components to be able to kind of accurately portray it. But we do try to continue to look for those types of things. And even um, in the language that we're talking to the team about, not in scripting, but these are things that you need to understand when talking to different people in the healthcare industry. If you're not a pure healthcare salesperson, every day, then, you know, you need to be able to understand how to, what the language is that you need to use with those individuals. So we try and 
do things that make people more sensitive to those that can help them to kind of maybe get past some of the rapport portion of it. But it comes down to the, the individuals. With respect to the rapport part, you did mention several times building trust through these nuggets of value. If I kind of reverse your role, right, from sales leader to sales buyer, right, because I'm sure people are pitching to you all the time, what do you look for when someone tries to initially engage you and then, you know, work with you to position their solution? Yeah, it's probably a little bit of a bias off of my own work that I did or that I try and inspire my teams. I do quite a bit of research of all different types, trying to understand the individuals that are a part of that decision that could influence it or things that might be influencing the company. So I do a ton of background investigation of my own to make sure I'm as informed as possible. So when people come at me in a very generic email blast, they're not getting through. You know, I just have spam filters on all those things as quickly as I possibly can. So it, it really has to be some way that they're engaging in me that demonstrates that they've done some investigation that understands who I am, what I'm doing, and what might be valuable to me. And there's enough information sources today, by contrast to at the time when I initially started selling, that I think some salespeople are just lazy about it or try and do it at such scale that that personalization doesn't come across. I think it's really important that I look for in people that I may talk to is that they understand what we're trying to do. Can you reflect maybe on something recent that you purchased where you felt the salesperson truly added value to you during the pre-sale process? In the case of SalesLoft, we've actually had a really great experience. They always came in sort of helping us think through different things that they expected or anticipated us experiencing and would test those out and give us different use cases of where they were trying different things with different companies. It's very obvious when somebody is really listening to you and providing you back details or information that relates to the different things that you've exposed to them through the process, as opposed to salespeople who don't, and you're constantly having to remind them through the process of things that were important as a part of the decision-making process because they just either don't care or aren't listening. Listening and being able to pull those things out at relevant times in the sale process is what uh, differentiates them. You mentioned the reminder piece, which made me think about the degree to which sales roles have become segmented over time. I would presume earlier in your career, this concept of there's a separate SDR and then there's a separate hunter and then they hand it off to the implementation team and then they hand it off to a customer success team, right? So all, all these hyper-segmented roles, I would assume did not particularly exist. How are you guys structured in you know, digital sales at Citrix today? Do you have all those separate roles? Yes, we do. And probably mid-career of my career as I was very involved in managed services or outsourcing sales where you were really required to utilize people with skills in so many different areas that you could not know all those different competencies at the levels that you would need to be able to convince the company that you were going to take over these capabilities for them. That's kind of informed today. I'm very careful about what are the skills that a generalized salesperson 
is required to have to work with that customer, but then making sure that when we're putting in other sales roles, whether it's specialist roles in a specific technology, or whether it's very technical salespeople, sales engineers that understand the technology at a different technical level, I try and be careful not to overcomplicate that. Because I think people naturally go, oh, well, this is a slightly different competency. And so we need to establish a whole different specialist sales organization. And that's not always true. I think you have to be careful of when you do that and when you don't do it. And you have to be careful what your engagement model is with customers so that it doesn't look so fractured that, you know, you have disparate engagement in the customer starts to feel like they have to retrain different people on them as a company at different points in the sale too. It also, you know, there are just more buyers within the company today between the business and the technology buyers. And so what I find us also having to do is really help our sales teams to understand, even when they're selling a technology, there's a business user on the other end of that, that over time has had more influence than uh, they did at, at different points in history. And so because of that, and to make sure the product's being adopted, it requires them to understand the functions or business that they're in. I would say the roles are kind of changing and we constantly have to evaluate who can consume what and who can portray what, but we do try and really work to make that engagement not cumbersome with so many different places to gauge that it, it becomes too difficult. You made the statement that, you know, there are certain people who, even if they're quote unquote, not a natural salesperson are able to succeed on the basis of listening and empathy and so on. But it made me reflect on this hiring because you have to hire, I'm sure at extreme scale as you have done at Citrix and as you did in your long tenure at Dell as well. Do you have a philosophy about either hiring early career professionals, even new college graduates and training them versus hiring experienced sales professionals? I think you have to do some combination of both. We have a great program of identifying people who really do want to be in the sales profession. And so we actually seek out and try and hire the best salespeople right out of college that have stated that that's their desire to go into sales because they have an, an energy and enthusiasm to really learn selling versus trying to necessarily retrain somebody or convince somebody that is just trying it because they don't know what they really want to do. So we've tried to be much more specific about trying to hire uh, people who want to be in a sales role, but we've had great success there. But I think if you have only that group of people, you don't get this context of other companies and other techniques that come from people working in a variety of places. So what we've tried to do is create a mix in our environment that allows for people to bring different experiences and different selling environments and different backgrounds to the team. Because I think it just gives us more diversity of thought around how we may approach different things. And so we haven't done one or the other exclusively. At one point in time, we were very heavy, purely college hire and train and develop and we found that it's good when you have a mix of external two that have different perspectives. With respect to hiring those experienced sales professionals, what do you personally look for as signs that someone's likely to be successful or, or signs that you should avoid somebody? 
I think what's really important is to do ongoing research and development of talent that you'd like to bring onto the team. I think we tend to get so skewed towards when do I have an open headcount? You're kind of behind the eight ball at that point in time. You're just trying to find the best person you can at that point in time in the marketplace, as opposed to if you have been fostering relationships over a longer period of time in these different markets, then you have a pipeline of people to maybe go to that you either vetted over a longer period and gotten to know them better or gotten to know their work better, as opposed to this kind of point in time hiring that I'm just not a fan of. To me, hiring of talent is a 24-hour day, every week of every year effort. It's not just when you happen to have Rex or not Rex. Success comes from, do you know them and can you slot them into the right spot too for them? I think it's very difficult for many companies that want to hire salespeople that are more pure white space, pure go in and create demand that are more account acquisition kind of talent. That's a different mindset. And when you do find them or find somebody that's good at it, you kind of want to foster and nurture the relationship with them to eventually hire them into the company. But that's very different than maybe an account manager that's somebody better at managing the ongoing penetration and retention of accounts. So you have to know what you're looking for in the role as well to try and match those things up. We have listeners, obviously, who are salespeople looking to become managers, managers looking to become VPs, VPs looking to you know, ultimately become CROs and CEOs. As you reflect on your transition from you know, manager or director to VP level in a significant tech enterprise company, what are some of the things that you think were epiphanies for you that, that you've learned and, and wisdom you want to pass on to the new generation of sales leadership? I think hiring and getting the right team is at the core of your success. It is one of the most important jobs and one that we don't focus on enough. So that would be one. The second one is the ongoing coaching and development that you're doing for those individuals. And so a lot of the effort I try and place and even kind of the sensing that I try and do inside my organization is how much of that coaching is happening you know, in a day-to-day, one-on-one, how are they helping in not just a critical way, but how is that manager getting in and actually working with the person, showing them how to do it, or teaming them up with somebody who may be a pace setter if they don't seem to respond as well from uh, the coaching even that the manager's doing? Are there other people that can kind of influence that? Uh, whether peer-to-peer or on other teams across the organization. So that one-on-one coaching has to be there on an ongoing basis, at least for the people that are going to perform at the highest level and be as adaptable in today's market environment. There's changes happening in sales. There's so many changes happening in the business environment that they have to be able to adapt to, that you need people that are constant learners Those two things have to come together. Otherwise, it's very difficult to be successful in a systemic way. Well, Kurt, it was uh, absolutely fantastic chatting with you and and getting your wisdom. If people do want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? 
either on LinkedIn as the tools of today. I'm happy to answer anybody that writes me at kurt.husner at citrix.com. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.